This is Golden Nuggets Podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Welcome back to the Golden Nuggets podcast. And in this episode, I interview Tim Richards. And I was doing this during the Barnes Film Festival Q&A. And what was interesting about this episode was he was giving insight into the film industry and opportunities for young filmmakers and why film is important and how it's changing and how there's an ever-changing landscape with that. He is the CEO and founder of View and has a global chain of operating in 212 cinemas in 10 countries and employing almost 10,000 people. He used to be an international finance lawyer on Wall Street back in the 80s before it crashed and then uh, went over to Warner Brothers and left there to set up, obviously, View. So be really nice insight for all those young people out there who are aspiring to be filmmakers or want to work in the film industry. Um, we discuss about his childhood to start off with, and then we have a Q&A at the end. So, uh, yeah, let's get straight into it. What challenges did you face growing up? Is there anything in particular, you know, was in, in Rio or in Canada? No, no. I'm... Or pretty relaxed? Yeah, pretty relaxed. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's like it's, it is, I mean, I had a, you know, a very lucky, privileged life growing up and, and, uh, and something that I was kind of aware of the whole time. We lived in a lot of places. My father was with the embassy, so we lived in a lot of places. I went to a lot of schools and um, you know, I, I never had a single home base per se. So I had a lot of friends in a lot of countries around the world at the time. So funny because I speak to a, a lot of people about you know educating kids, and one big common theme is resilience and adapting. But it seems as though because you had to jump around anyway the, with your father's job, it seemed as though it came sort of second nature to you. Do you think that actually helped you as well then, with with being obviously you know a very successful businessman now? Yeah, I mean, I think you 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 learn how to adapt to different cultures, and and you know they're useful tools to have for later life. Are you quite? Are you fluent in a few languages then, or? Used to be fluent in Portuguese, but I've lost it. But uh, when I go down and visit friends now, after a few caparinhas, it comes back. <laughs> At least in my mind, it does. <laughs> um, so a little bit about: so Do you think entrepreneurship was in your blood, or do you think you've actually developed that skill set? Because obviously, you talked about Warner Brothers and leaving it, like. Do you think it was always inside of you as a young kid? Like, did you do things growing up as a kid that you were like, yeah, I want to try this and give it a go? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't, um, I'm kind of second, third generation entrepreneur. My father was, my grandfather was as well. So, um, I mean, it had to be in there or in there somewhere. Hmm. Uh, but um, but no, I mean, I, I for me, when I started the company, it was, it was, I, mean, I think some entrepreneurs talk about a eureka moment when, something and the whole plan and vision becomes clear. And I didn't have anything like that. I, I had, I had probably four or five different things that happened to me and all of those kind of crystallized into seeing an opportunity in the annual report, um, uh, Time Warner AOL annual report. Uh, our division at Warner Brothers was labeled a non-core asset. Um, that is never a good thing. So the writing was kind of on the wall that uh, we may not have been around for a lot longer. I saw the opportunity. 
and 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 jumped on it. What you said, you mentioned your granddad was an entrepreneur. Like, what did he do, and what did your dad do that was entrepreneurial? He um, he uh, started a um, a glass company um, in Toronto, and uh, and then my father kind of did an offshoot of that when he left the foreign service and started a kind of a scientific company of which glass was part of it. Okay. Um, now moving slightly on, we, uh, you were a wall street international finance lawyer, uh, before you did all of this. Um, what was wall street like? And when was it? Was it in like the eighties? Was it or you're being kind? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was the eighties. Um, I'm glad you didn't say seventies, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary time in history to, to be, in in wall street in finance in the 80s uh it was incredible there's been a lot of movies and books written about it um it was wild west it was absolutely wild west did you ever meet jordan belfort or any of those sort of sharks like that no no they're just sort of a, a someone else in a different department you stayed clear of it yeah well no there's there's yeah i mean there, there was no shortage of interesting characters in those days mm, no i'm sure um what do you think, uh, what things were you exposed to that helped nurture your character, do you think? I mean, you mentioned skiing, obviously. You mentioned your father, grandfather being entrepreneurs and stuff. Was there, or is there anyone else where, and obviously your, your mother was a, a supreme athlete as well. Maybe that's passed through the genetic codes. But was there anything else where you felt, actually, this person really influenced me? No, I mean, I never really had any mentors, per se. I mean, my parents were probably as close as possible um, my father is an entrepreneur and a sportsman. My mother with just an incredible um, appetite for all sports. And, and, and I think sports were a very, very big part of my life and are just incredibly character building for, for kids. And um, it gives them skills uh, very early on for, for, for life. And, you know, it's really interesting seeing at a very early stage those kids that have that kind of drive. And that kind of drive translates to to life in the future. And, and that's why, you know, I, I always kind of look at kind of backgrounds of people that I work with as well in terms of, you know, in the early days when I was hiring, trying to get the top people. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things you kind of look for. So obviously drive and maybe grit, but what, so what does that actually look like then? Like if you've got candidate A versus candidate B. What, what, how do you determine this one is the one? I'm absolutely rubbish at interviewing people. <laughs> uh, and uh, I had, I had, um, I brought on a very close friend and partner uh, early on in the company. Uh, and, and I think, you know, part, part of being, I think, a successful entrepreneur is recognizing your strengths and weaknesses. And, and I kind of was able to do that fairly early on. I knew the areas that I really needed to supplement. And fortunately, one of the areas that he was very good at was interviewing. I'm very guilty of being too quickly judgmental of people. And uh, whereas, whereas I kind of make up my mind within three or four minutes, and then I would actually continue. Uh, and I'd fight that, and I'd try and be objective. But my partner would literally go for an hour and, and make up his mind at the very end. I suppose it must be hard to get perspective if it's only a couple of minutes, but I mean, you probably get first impressions that gets to your gut, right? Yeah, I mean, first impressions are really, really important. And that's something that I've always kind of preached to our, you know, 
to kids generally. I mean, it's, it is those first few minutes, people are starting to determine uh, and decide what they're going to think of you and, and, and really rightly or wrongly what you're like. Mm. So it's funny, isn't it? Everyone's trying to find those like little one percenters, like what Dave Brailsford always says, you know, in terms of like optimizing performance and things, what you eat, how much you sleep, what what pillow you have and stuff like that. Is there any little sort of habitual things that you, you do to try and maximize your levels of energy? No, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I, I think that, um, again, back to sports, uh, sports later in life have gotten me through all kind of major stressful times. And, and I think sports are the greatest stress buster there is. And uh, they're a great outlet as well. And so, so I, I think um, you know, I've relied on, on sports and running and cycling and, and others when, when things haven't quite gone to plan. When you're an entrepreneur, that happens fairly frequently. And, uh, and then it kind of just helps you retain a level of objectivity. Hmm. Has there ever been a moment where things haven't gone to plan? And what have you done in, in that moment? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I started the company, I, I had uh, mortgaged our house. I'd put in every single penny that I had. It wasn't a lot. But it was everything I had. Uh, and then when I moved over here, my work permit, I mean, I had everything. I mean, I went through four years, first four years of setting up a company where we were literally just living on a nice edge. Luck and timing really are hugely important because as an entrepreneur, you love to control things and you can't control those. And you realize it's a very fine line between success and failure. What I was going to say as well, in terms of like, what do the actual jobs look like, you know, in the film and media industry? Because there's obviously a wide range of stuff now. Um, like, for example, my cousin works for Melody VR. Now, you may or may not have heard of them, but they do sort of live events, 360 VR events. And that's obviously one avenue that wasn't around maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, what sort of new things are emerging for people to get involved in? Well, I think, I mean, tr traditional media is changing, but it's not changing as much as everyone thinks. And I think, you know, the main impact there, there that we've seen in the last few years has been in-home. And I think PVOD subscription services have had a very significant impact on home entertainment. It's affected terrestrial TV, it's affected pay TV, sky TV, and there's been a lot going on there. Out of home entertainment, in terms of cinema exhibition, us, we were absolutely guilty of being complacent for a long time. And if you look at, take the UK as an example, if you look at the attendance levels in the UK, 1.2 billion people used to go to the cinemas here in the immediate post-war period. And, and that dropped down from 1.2 billion to 54 million in 1984. I mean, it just fell off a cliff. And, and I think the reason for that was cinemas were complacent. And that's when they stopped investing. We stopped investing. People stopped coming. The fewer people that came, the less money the operators had and they couldn't spend. So you end up in this kind of death spiral going down. The first multiplex was opened in Milton Keynes in 1985. And that was really the beginning of the kind of multiplex revolution. And, uh, you know, we, we as an industry and as a company, it's all companies and all businesses, you need to come continuously reinvent yourself. You can never ever afford to be complacent for a day, a week, a month. 
And we are constantly, and a lot of this stuff is invisible, we are testing and trialing probably a dozen things every single day in our cinemas. And you're probably not even aware of it. What, th- what, things, are they- what things are they? <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> uh, no, but I can tell you, like, historically, I mean, one of the things we did, we tried um, VIP seats. We, we thought, okay, well, we'll try VIP seats in the best rows in every auditorium. And mm-hmm. normally we would take six cinemas that were representative of the whole circuit. So one rural, one urban, one north, one south, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and we would test it for six months. And then we would see what would happen. If it worked, we'd roll it out. If it didn't work, we'd move on. I mean, we were kind of one of the first companies in the world to use AI in the industry. We went through 52 versions in beta uh, until we hit it spot on. And um, once we got it, it was amazing. And what this model does, it uses AI to work out what to show in what screen, at what time, at what cinema, and what time do we open it. And it's an, been an incredible tool now. And we've had, it, we've had it up and running in the UK for about five years. And we've been rolling it out across Europe for the last two years. It's a very, very sophisticated piece of software. Mm. What, going on to the experience, because you've talked about that as well. So I don't know whether you've been, but the Paragon Centre in Siam in Bangkok, you may be doing this. I'm not sure there might be someone else, but it was literally the best experience I've ever had. It was like the bed, it was literally a sofa bed. It was huge. The comforts was outrageous. The recliner seats, they had waiter service, food, booze. You could have a massage if you wanted on your feet. It, the, the, the experience was epic and it was like 10 quid. Now, obviously, it's Thailand. It's a lot cheaper. The business model might work over there. But it was incredible. Like It was worth going out of your home environment, your home entertainment system to do it for the experience. And and that's for me is like that's what's going to change now. So for example, most people have got a big TV now; they can afford it. It's affordable. They've got a surround sound system; it's affordable. They can go on like you know Netflix, Rackington TV, Prime Video, whichever one they want, and they can pick up a, a film which is only three months from the cinema being released, and it'll cost them five pound ninety nine, which is a hell of a lot cheaper than taking your whole family to the cinema if it's a similar movie. I suppose that's probably one of the financial models you might be looking at and the challenges you face. But if it is going to change, what is the future of film? How is it actually going to change to make people leave their home environment to go to the cinema? Well, I think, I mean, there's always going to be demand for out-of-home entertainment. Mm. And, and I've never looked at anything that happens in the home as even competition. Our competition is when a family or a couple or an individual wants to leave their flat or their home and go out and be entertained. Whether it be a pub, a football game, Legoland, London Zoo, that's our competition. And our goal has always been to try and convince them to turn right instead of left and come to one of our cinemas. But I, I don't, uh, I mean, look, in, in terms of the Bangkok experience, I mean, we have a graveyard of things that didn't work. And we rolled out sofas, large sofas, uh, 2005, 2006, British consumers didn't like them. And uh, we, we rolled out beanbag chairs. And, and again, it just, it just didn't really ever catch on. So what's really working right now are the recliner seats. And, mm. and that's something that we're rolling out. They're really expensive and you lose a lot of capacity. Mm. But we're rolling those out right across Europe right now. How do you think um, the streaming system has affected you? How do you think Netflix actually affected you know, the cinema industry? 
Well, I mean, I think if you look at, I mean, again, this is kind of in-home out-of-home again, but uh, if you look at 2018 in the UK, more people went in 2018 than 50 years. Um, if you look at box office, box office has been increasing year on year for the last 25 years. Uh, records fell everywhere. Biggest movie of all time, Avengers. Uh, biggest HR, mo- uh, biggest uh, R-rated film of all time, Joker. And, mm-hmm. um, and then you had uh, Parasite, Korean film, win everything at the Oscars. <laughs> so so I, I um, and there's nothing broken here. Uh, last yeah. year, again, globally, a massive new record set, $43 billion of global box office. And mm-hmm. this is something that um, catches the studios and content producers' eyes because that's the potential, that's the future. And it's also Apple and it's, and it's Amazon. And we're hoping that Netflix will at some point release some of their films on our screens. And I, I think mm-hmm. that will happen at some point. And also, you've uh, you've got FilmWave, uh, Sylvie's uh, Richard's um, company, and she's managed to get her first Netflix show, Letter for the King. So, well done for to her as well. That's I've started watching it. It looks fantastic. It's like the Game of Thrones for kids, isn't it? Maybe slightly older than kids, but it's uh, it's fascinatingly it's well well shot as well. So, no, um, it's, it's it's an incredible production, and that's uh, she's the Netflix executive. So we have a little bit of a Chinese wall on on, uh, on that one. <laughs> I think just sort of uh, moving on to VR slightly as well. So do you think VR has a place for films in the cinemas? No, I mean, I think VR by its very nature is, is kind of fragmented. And a movie is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end. And VR is kind of about exploring the space that you happen to be in with whatever content that you're, 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 you're engaged with at that time. I don't really see that being in cinemas. I mean, it's been tried for years now and it hasn't really ever worked. Mm-hmm. What's, what's really kind of interesting, and I think we're still a few years away, but there's been, there's been a little bit of activity recently. Um, so they're working on, on holograms to actually present a actual production in a cinema, which would be very, very cool. Yeah, that'd and, be wicked. And, and yeah, so the technology is there right now and they're just trying to perfect it. Like all technologies... You know, they're evolving so quickly. And, and I see the work that's being done on that right now, probably three to five years. Do you think it'll just like pop up out of the side of your chair or something? There'll be like little, you know, Jedi warrior just pops out. Or do you think it'll be more in the center? How would it work? I think it'll be more like a, a presentation in front of the screen or possibly even evolving the screen. Mm. But it'll feel like a, 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 an extension on 3D where it's yeah. actually out in the actual part of the audience as well. And mm-hmm. it'll feel a lot more lifelike, almost like you're seeing a live theater show, but with the special effects and everything behind it. Oh, nice. They tried to do one uh, a concert. They tried to do a few concerts like that as well, haven't they, recently? Um, what I was going to move on to as well is in terms of like limited, if you've got a limited budget, right, and you're a filmmaker. So I know the Blair Witch Project, I think their budget was still you know, relatively speaking, still a bit of money. So 200 to 500,000, but it did gross 250 million at the box office, which is just astronomical growth, isn't it? Uh, but there has been some films like the flood Florida projects and Tangerine that were filmed mainly on iPhones. So, you know, is it a case for young filmmakers now? It's just get your iPhone out. And, uh, and as long as you've got a good script and some good actors, you can try and do it yourself anywhere, anytime. A good idea and a good script is, is the best start there is. 
and um, and then everything else fills in. But I mean, that's what what, what has changed, particularly in, in the kind of digitized world that we live in. It's a lot more accessible to a lot more people, and um, and the ability for young filmmakers to capture that at an early age is really exciting. Mm. Did you did you get your kids involved in doing any sort of you know filming when they were younger, or did you get them? In, how did you get them interested in it, or were they doing it naturally anyway? No, I'm very aware of my natural limitations, <laughs> and uh, and I'd love to say that I I have that kind of element of creativity, but I don't. Uh, my daughter, my daughter does. Camille does. Yeah. Uh, she's incredible. I'm kind of in awe at some of the things she does. But um, but no, you can see, and that's that's not me. I'm kind of a uh, more of the entrepreneurial businessman, unfortunately. No, fair enough. Um, just sort of finally, we've um, got some, we need to have some golden nuggets. So if there's any like sort of young filmmakers out there and what advice, I mean, obviously you mentioned about grit um, in terms of like hard work and stuff, but what, what golden nuggets have you got for anyone entering the entertainment industry? Well, I think, um, I mean, perseverance, uh, any industry, particularly these days, but filmmaking in the industry, it's a tough industry. And you've got to believe in yourself and you've just got to persevere and never, ever give up. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of no's. I mean, I, 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 when I was trying to raise money for my company to get started, you know, I, had, I, I still have all the no's. I have all the rejections to keep me humble. Um, but, um, you know, it's really tough and, and you'll get discouraged. If I look back my kind of professional career, my biggest opportunities, ironically, have come during major recessions. So, you know, and I think the situation that we find ourselves living in right now, I think there's going to be some extraordinary opportunities in the near future, and it's trying to capitalize on those opportunities. Because um, things are tough right now, and they're, very, they're really tough for a lot of people. Well, mate, that's uh, perseverance, I think, is the key there, isn't it? Well, um, look, thanks for coming on the, the podcast, the Why Now podcast. Um, we're going to still stay on online for um, the public Q&A, so I'm just going to bring up a few questions and um, see if we can get some answers and stuff. Alexa Bailey, I have daughters who are at uni and I can't help notice how much of these students spend on events. How is the market developing for more of a portable cinema for independent screenings free from the restriction of cinemas? Well, I think, I mean, there, look, there are mobile cinemas in existence right now, but one of the things that we try and do is we've tried to support um, young filmmakers and we've worked with young filmmakers and we're coming up with a new program that we're going to be announcing. Uh, personally, I've been uh, a governor of the BFI now for eight years. I mean, I've tried and spent, you know, the best part of the last 20 years trying to foster and help develop British and independent filmmaking because I believe in it. Okay, hopefully that's uh, that's answered her question. We've got one. Uh, let's have a look at this one. Uh, what film have you seen coming out this year, next year, that will be huge box office? What is exciting? Uh, you know, coming up. Do you are you going to let that go? <laughs> well, no, <laughs> no. no look, but there's there's some amazing movies coming out, and I think you know Warner Brothers are planning on launching Tenet, Chris Nolan's Tenet, and uh, it sounds like it's like an incredible film. Um, Similar to Inception, you need to see it a few times, but you keep it's such an amazing movie. You want to keep going back and seeing it. Yeah, I watched that the other day. Such a good film. Yeah, but but if you you know if you look at the other films coming out, 
you've got Black Widow, you've got Fast and Furious, you've got you know even Mulan, the live action Mulan coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, you got you know we got Bond coming out in November, which has now been accelerated a few weeks, mm-hmm. and the slate of films coming out in twenty one extraordinary. Um, also, just one final question we've got is uh, which is better, the UK or the US film industry? Oh boy, uh, <laughs> I need to be careful what I say because uh, <laughs> your uh, American film industry are, are my best friends. Yeah, um, but no, I, I I think they're 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 they coexist and they coexist very well because I think mm. that um, I mean no one does big movies like Hollywood does. Um, nobody markets and promotes the big films like Hollywood does, and then every once in a while. Uh, well, not every once in a while, but they also come out with some absolutely extraordinary smaller films. But I think the British film industry in the last few years has really genuinely excelled. And, you know, there's a reason why people want to come here and film here. And I think we have absolutely the best talent globally in the UK. And mm-hmm. that's not just the actual filmmakers themselves. It's the entire infrastructure around it. Um, and we have the best facilities and the best talent and the best FX. And uh, so I, I think it's, it's a great place to be. And, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I love and admire very successful filmmakers that haven't felt that urge and need to, to move and, and relocate and have stayed here. Mm. Oh, fascinating. Well, um, thanks so much, Tim, for joining us today. And uh, hopefully it's given an insight for, you know, for young filmmakers and to, to better inform them. And uh, there is plenty more on the schedule tonight, so please just have a look on the on the Hub Live. And uh, and thanks for joining us.